Like Bond, silver was once a blunt instrument, something to be wielded by the British establishment, but without ever being admitted to the establishment himself. Also, like Bond, silver is haunted by his past. However, the similarities run out of road here. In the absence of a chosen family like the one Bond has, something has steadily eaten away at silver. And I'm not just talking about cyanide. As we have seen in part one of this queer review, Fleming was adamant, most explicitly in his novel Moonraker, that Bond was not part of the establishment, but was instead an outsider who would never be comfortable for so long in England. The same could also be said of other double agents, their maladjustment being integral to their professional effectiveness. England is their employer, but not where they belong. Skyfall presents something of a challenge to Fleming's intention, with its penultimate scene. Interviewed by The Hollywood Reporter ten years after the release of Skyfall, director Sam Mendes said he regretted associating Bond with so much establishment iconography. Quoting Mendes, I would think twice about having Bond stand on the rooftops of Whitehall with the Union Jack flags in the breeze, given the last ten years of serial incompetence from the Conservative government. One could also cite the scene where Bond runs down Whitehall while, overlaid on the soundtrack, M recites the closing lines of Tennyson's Ulysses, a poem well established in the canon of English literature. In the background we see Westminster Abbey, the place where Tennyson's body resides. Could the scene be any more establishment? Well, any viewer well-versed in queer history could call into question quite how establishment this scene is. Tennyson wrote Ulysses to eulogise his male best friend, who present-day academics consider to have also been his lover. But without this knowledge of the history behind the rousing words, the sequence presents an uncomplicated celebration of British stiff upper-lipped stoicism. While the establishment is not off-limits to queer people, it is rarely shouted openly about the queer identities and activities of its members, at least outside of the group. And when unpleasant truths of any kind rear their heads, the establishment springs into action to protect its members. The article in which Henry Fairley first popularised the term concerned the defection of two high-ranking Foreign Office figures, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, to Russia. Fairley criticised the establishment for deflecting press attention from the men's families after they scarpered to the USSR. Guy Burgess and Don McLean were both at the very heart of the establishment and their spying for the KGB, when revealed to the public, brought British intelligence into disrepute. It provided Fleming with plot inspiration for From Russia With Love, where both men are mentioned by name. Guy Burgess's homosexuality, which he never hid from his establishment friends and which became publicly known following his defection, sparks off a conversation in the novel between Bond and an old-school officer about homosexuals being, quote, the worst security risk there is. Because homosexuality was illegal, gay men were particularly vulnerable to being caught in honey traps and blackmailed by the KGB. But some queer spies were arguably motivated to betray their country because they felt betrayed by their country. Could such figures have been indirect inspirations for silver? On the surface, 
Sir Anthony Blunt was as much a part of the establishment as you could get. Not only was he a knight, but he was also a royal courtier, the surveyor of the Queen's pictures no less, responsible for the care and maintenance of the sovereign's extensive art collection. But Sir Anthony was a Soviet spy, a close friend of fellow spies Guy Burgess and Donald Maclean. Blunt and the other Cambridge spies all met at one of Britain's most prestigious universities before going on to have successful careers at the heart of government. They leaked copious secrets to the KGB. As well as ruining the reputation of British intelligence, they caused the deaths of dozens of British agents. There's a chilling scene in Skyfall which shows MI6 agents around the world being eliminated after having their identities blown by silver. Although the use of YouTube means it carries resonances of the methods of terrorist groups such as ISIS, the unmasking of spies would have made uncomfortable viewing for 1950s audiences too. Of the Cambridge spy group, Blunt is believed to have been the most proactive in recruiting other agents for the Soviets. Yet Blunt was firmly a part of the British establishment, so what motivated him in his attempts to bring it down? It has never become clear why Blunt felt little loyalty to Queen and Country, but in a 2020 documentary, one of Blunt's friends, Alistair Lang, maintained that Blunt's own sense of betrayal because of his homosexuality had something to do with it. Lang said, To be a homosexual, when to indulge in any homosexual act and be discovered in it would have meant instant dismissal and disgrace. He must have felt in some way, how loyal am I to a country that could potentially do this to me, end quote. Blunt is not mentioned by Fleming alongside his friends Burgess and Maclean because he was not outed as a spy until the year of Fleming's death, 1964. Because of an establishment cover-up, Blunt's betrayal was kept from public attention until 1979, whereupon Sir Anthony was stripped of his titles. The exploits and sexual orientations of the Cambridge spies directly influenced John le Carré, particularly his novel Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So it's interesting that an early treatment of Skyfall had an ending which was, in the words of A.J. Chowdhury and Matthew Field, le Carré-esque. In this version, M committed an even greater betrayal after being blackmailed over a former lover, perhaps intended to be an echo of Vesper's betrayal in Casino Royale. This treatment ended with M not being killed by Silver, but by Bond himself. Although the idea was quickly discarded, the fact that it was even a possibility raises the question, how bad would the betrayal have to be to turn Bond into a matricidal killer like Silver? Like Bond's childhood, Silver's is left deliberately murky, but a salient detail is in finding delight, or at least morbid fascination, in novel methods of killing wildlife, specifically rats. Harming animals before graduating to humans is something you find in the childhoods of any number of serial killers. But the most formative experience of all, the one that tipped him over the edge, happened later in life, although when he was still a relatively young man. With the action of Skyfall taking place 15 years after the handover of Hong Kong, this suggests Silver was likely only in his mid to late 20s. M's sacrifice of him to the Chinese government is the parental and institutional betrayal which destroys his ability to trust and form an intimate connection with anyone or anything. Silver has no allegiance except to himself, 
as he tells Bond, he sends himself on his own missions with no oversight. The only uniform he's prepared to wear is that of a policeman, which he uses as a disguise to penetrate Whitehall security. The cross-cutting between Silver disguised as a police officer and M giving her speech to the committee reinforces that Silver is even more challenged than Bond when it comes to finding a home. M's words highlight to us that Silver's face is scarred, his uniform is appropriated and he operates under no flag. Although he must have been a British national at some point, a prerequisite for joining MI6, he no longer belongs to a nation. He has no one to care for or care about or anyone to care for him. The only home Silver does have is an abandoned island. Silver tells Bond that it's he who is living in a ruin, but Silver may as well be talking about himself. For that matter, so much of Silver's psychological assessment of Bond could apply to himself. A classic case of projection. Like Bond's childhood residence, Silver's Island is described as haunted in the screenplay. The screenplay also reveals a detail which did not make it into the finished film, when Silver tells Bond the story behind the island's sudden evacuation. After he says the line, tells a story doesn't it? They left the island so quickly they couldn't decide what to take, what to leave, what was important. At that point, Silver is described as stepping around an old baby carriage. And then he continues his speech. And seeing this every day reminds me to focus on the essentials. There's nothing, nothing superfluous in my life. When a thing is redundant, it is eliminated. Stepping around a baby carriage in the middle of a monologue about cutting out of his life what isn't essential might be read as a rejection of reproductive futurism. The idea that we are motivated to make a better world for the benefit of future generations of children. Some radical queer thinkers see this aim as a futile one because fewer of us queer people have our own biological children, ignoring the fact that there are many other ways to nurture the next generation. Silver does not appear to have any kind of future planned for himself or anyone else. He is motivated only by revenge, the rage he feels at his parent. Unlike Bond, Silver has not created a chosen family to help him get past his rage and build a more resilient sense of self. Silver's tale is a caution to anyone, particularly those of us who are still working through trauma. One of the biggest talking points of Skyfall is the first encounter between Bond and Silver, with Silver sensually stroking Bond's chest and face, rubbing his legs, pausing with meaning after speaking of eating each other, and Bond challenging Silver's assumptions by telling him, what makes you think this is my first time? Audience responses to this line range from, this proves James Bond is bi, to outright denial commonly articulated along the lines of Bond says it to mess with Silver. While there may be an element of the latter, just leaving it at that unnecessarily closes the door on possibilities. It's not a million miles away from tagging on no homo after realising one has said something that might be construed as sounding gay. This offensive phrase was popularised by hip-hop in the 1990s onwards. Another context, like Bond, in which heterosexuality has traditionally been assumed. 
But as bisexual Bond fan Kathleen Jowett cautions, assumptions are dangerous. She writes, The pervasive heteronormativity and monosexism of the society I'm writing in means that, without concrete evidence, the possibility of bisexuality is often dismissed, or indeed never thought of in the first place. If one raises it, one's often held to an impossibly high burden of proof. So Bond's extensive on-screen sexual experience with women is taken to negate the possibility of his ever being interested in anyone who isn't a woman, and his response to Silver is dismissed as a joke. Denying the possibility that Bond or Silver might be bisexual smacks of bisexual erasure. While neither comes out, pun intended, and says they are bi, neither say they're heterosexual either. Therefore, all possibilities are on the table. Bisexual and pansexual are identities, whereas men who have sex with men refers to sexual behaviour. The term was coined by epidemiologists in the 1990s to refer to the significant number of men who did have sex with men, but who didn't identify as gay or bisexual. It has subsequently been adopted by researchers in other academic fields to more accurately represent the extent of same-sex sexual activity. It's understandable why bisexual people would want to attach their identity label to Bond or Silver. Their explicitly, i.e. uncoded, representation in the Bond series up until this point has been practically non-existent. Describing the impact of this scene, Jarrett writes the following. What makes you think this is my first time? Bond asks Silver, who's got him tied to a chair and he's running his hands up his thighs. And a legion of queer Bond fans cheers, quietly, so as not to disturb the rest of the cinema. Let's be real, Silver wasn't the only one who assumed that this was the first time. When Daniel Craig was asked about what the scene meant at a press conference promoting the film, he said that Silver would F anything, but didn't comment on Bond. However, he did commit to saying that, quote, I don't see the world in sexual divisions. Whether we use the label bisexual, pansexual, men who have sex with men, it's hard to argue against this being a homoerotic seduction. However, the extent to which the scene was officially intended to show this has changed over time. Perhaps protective of the film's box office on its initial release, Mendes and Logan prevaricated a little. In November 2012, Mendes told Uproxx journalist Gregory Ellison that, quote, as long as you understand that the scene is a power game, it's not necessarily an overt seduction. It's, if I wanted to, I could F you. Well, does he want to F him, or is he just effing with him? This is the question, end quote. At the New York premiere in the same month, the writer John Logan took a similarly circumlocutory line. Quote, Some people claim it's because I'm in fact gay, but not true at all. Sam and I were discussing, there were so many scenes where Bond goes mano a mano with the villain, whether it's Dr. No or Goldfinger or whatever, and there's been so many ways to do a cat and mouse and intimidate Bond, and we thought what would truly make the audience uncomfortable is sexual intimidation, playing the sort of homoerotic card that is sort of always there subtextually with characters like Scaramanga, in The Man with the Golden Gun or Dr. No, so we just decided that we should play the card and enjoy it. So if we take the director and writer at their word, 
was the scene using homophobia as a way of intimidating Bond and unsettling homophobic viewers? Eight and a half years later, in May 2021, Logan was more direct. In his guest essay for the New York Times decrying the Amazon acquisition of Bond because it would stifle risk-taking, he used the silver Bond seduction scene as his example of one of those risks. Quoting Logan, Sam and I boldly announced we wanted to do this pivotal scene as a homoerotic seduction. Barbara and Michael didn't need to poll a focus group. They didn't need to vet this radical idea with any studio or corporation. They loved it instantly. They knew it was fresh and new, provocative in a way that keeps the franchise contemporary. They weren't afraid of controversy. In my experience, not many big movies can work with such freedom and risky joy. But with the Broccoli Wilson family at the helm, Bond is allowed to provoke, grow and be idiosyncratic. Long may that continue. John Logan's comments were corroborated by Barbara Broccoli herself in the 2021 documentary Being James Bond. She said they had to fight to keep the what makes you think this is my first timeline in the film. The studio executives feared it would be too overt. Quote Broccoli, we were told to cut that line by the studio. and We said no, 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 we resisted, we resisted. Affirming what many of us have known for decades, in the same documentary, Sam Mendes retrospectively added that, quote, I think there's a huge homoerotic undertow in a lot of Bond movies. The provocative scene between Bond and Silver may have played a part in encouraging people to embrace their homosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality, or resist labels entirely. After the seduction scene, Silver takes Bond outside for a shooting contest where the possibly by by play continues. He tells the unhappy target, Serene, her lovers are here, suggesting he and she have had sex at some point. When he tells Bond the contest will decide who ends up on top, it's not clear at this point if he's talking about further sexual activity between Bond and Severine, himself and Severine, himself and Bond, or all three of them together. But considering that Silver probably plans to kill Severine all along, it would be sensible to assume he was referring to something happening between Bond and himself. Or was he planning for Bond to turn the tables and therefore nothing to happen? Incidentally, this is not the place to go into how much Skyfall relies on coincidence and chance for the plot to fall into place. It's sufficient to state that, taken by themselves, these scenes raise significant queer possibilities if you divorce them from the line of dominoes that follows. Like several other Bond villains, Silver is coded as queer by surrounding him with culture by queer artists. The shooting contest scene is soundtracked with the song Bomb by gay singer Charles Trenet, the upbeat music working to give us an insight into Silver's blissfully buoyant frame of mind, but working contrapuntally with the scene as we realise the horror of what is about to take place. After he's been captured and he's showing M how the cyanide capsule ate away his face, Silver paraphrases the poet Percy Shelley. Look upon your work, mother. Many academics recognise that it's likely Shelley had same-sex relationships, perhaps even with his bisexual best mate Lord Byron. Some have even read between the lines and speculated that Shelley, Byron and Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein and Shelley's wife, were in a polyamorous triad. 
The Shelley poem invoked by Silver is Ozymandias, about a formerly all-powerful figure whose legacy has crumbled over time. The only reminder is a ruined statue with the inscription, Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Silver's attempt to end his life by biting down on his cyanide capsule may invite superficial comparisons with Alan Turing, the gay war hero betrayed by his country and who died aged just 41 from cyanide poisoning, although officially ruled a suicide. This has since been contested. I'm not for one minute suggesting that Turing and Silver have more in common than betrayal and cyanide. Turing actually appeared to have relatively few hang-ups about his homosexuality, and he really liked running, which Silver is definitely not a fan of. Your knees must be killing you. Screenwriter and comedian Alistair Baldwin notes that Silver is double-coded, as both queer and disabled, his facial disfigurement marking him out as different. He is, to quote Baldwin, the latest in a long line of Bond villains written with the mindset that inner wickedness can't help but manifest physically. Baldwin, both queer and disabled himself, observed that it's a double-edged sword. Quote, In cinema, the intersection of disability and queerness tends to best cluster around the villain. Well, I say best, but we're not exactly spoiled for choice. And while I recognise this treatment can fortify stigma against my communities, there is something in me that's drawn to the dark side. Like blondes, baddies seem to have more fun. Villains disrupt, and in their disruptions shift the status quo. The acts of movie villains tend towards horrific violence, things I'd never begin to imagine doing. Yet I connect more broadly with the desire for chaos, the desire to shake things up in a world made for the people who get the happy ending. End quote. Many have noted the similarity between Silver and the Joker in Nolan's The Dark Knight. Both are agents of chaos with murky motivations and vaguely defined goals. Both have their legions of queer fans. In his article ranking Bond villains for Esquire magazine, queer journalist Jacob Hall placed Silver at number 9 out of 104, describing him as a tragic monster a sympathetic villain driven by personal hatred and rage, end quote. It's not difficult to see why queer people who feel resentment towards members of their family or society in general could connect with Silver on some level. In part four of the queer review of Skyfall, we're going to look at the girls of the film. Although, since we've already dealt with M in the Allies, and she's often held up as the Bond girl of this film, that just leaves us to talk about Severine. But we've actually got quite a lot to say about Severine from a queer point of view. Mm-hmm.